0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, welcome everyone. We're delighted to have... Two guests here this evening to do the talk on their new book, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. The third edition, so clearly it's a very successful book if the publisher keeps wanting to put out more editions.
1: We can talk about that. and We'll talk about that.
0: Um, we're delighted to have both of them because they're not just people who wrote a book, but they're people who wrote a book who have long connections with our organization, the National yes. Committee. Uh, Jeff Wasserstrom was on our board for several years and Mara was on the staff for several years and we're just so pleased to have the two of them back. I just did a very brief uh, podcast with them. We've started sort of a new series and this is one talking to people about their China careers, how they get involved and especially people who've done both China and been involved with the National Committee. So they had lots of really interesting things to say and One of the most interesting is I found out something new about Jeff, that what he really wanted to be when he was a kid growing up was to be a songwriter and be a big shot in Nashville. Um, He went in a slightly different direction, but if you don't have enough questions to ask him at the end of this program, we'll ask him to sing one of his songs. How about that?
2: (laughs) Okay. Not if it's recorded. (laughs)
0: So I've told you the name of their new book. This is, I'm afraid I don't have the second edition. This was the first edition. This is the third edition. Jeff wrote the first one on his own, and then on the second and third, he worked with his student and now colleague, Mara Cunningham. Um, Mara is now, after having worked several places, but most recently before this at the National Committee, working on our public intellectuals program, uh, she is now the digital media manager at the Association of Asian Studies and is trying to bring that entity into the modern age of communications. She tried to do that with us at the committee, and now she's gone on to do that at a much larger All
2: of Asia. China. Yeah. All,
0: All of Asia. Asia right? China
2: wasn't big enough. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and Jeff is the chancellor, this is an important title, the chancellor professor of history at UC Irvine. Uh, and so I guess maybe I'm just going to throw out one question, and then the two of them are such prolific and interesting talkers, they probably won't need another question from me, but first, uh, why a third edition, and how is it different from the first and second, so other than
1: the picture on the bottom? Well, yeah,
2: I was going to say something about the picture on the bottom, or did you well, want to say why something? Why
1: don't you introduce how, the, how you got involved in okay. the series, and then I'll talk about that.
2: How, how I got involved in the series, and also... I did not come up with this fairly highfalutin what everyone needs to know (laughs) title. That was a series that Oxford had. I I loved their very short introductions books, these very short books about a topic that sort of really uh, gives you a lively introduction to it. And I was visiting the publishers. uh, uh, I knew some of the editors at Oxford. And I said, Drat, you know, Rana Mitter has already done Modern China, a very short introduction. I would love to do a short book that tried to distill things about China. And they said, we've got a new series called the What Everyone Needs to Know series that tries to give people a quick fix on something that they feel a kind of urgency to get up to speed on. The way the series came into being was there was a specialist in Islam, John Esposito, and after 9-11 he was giving talks and he was realizing he was getting the same questions over and over again that betrayed an incredible ignorance about Islam. And so he started gathering together the questions he got and the answers that he had refined into very kind of informative but snappy answers. And he brought this as a book to Oxford and it was called What Everyone Needs to Know About Islam. They published it and it did really well. And so Oxford said, well, why don't we do a whole series like this? And they're a little bit like, to be honest, uh, dummies guides or idiots guides. But this is Oxford That's University nice. Press, so you're not going to say, you know, total moron's guides or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so what everyone needs to know, sound appealed to the, yes. um, the, the gravitas, but the shortness, uh, the, sh- the, the brevity of it appealed to me. And they said, you know, maybe a China book for that. I said, great. And I tried to think of what topic seemed to be, have an urgency to get uh, your, your head around and I, I couldn't think of all of China you can't do China what everyone needs to know. I didn't think so I thought how about Chinese nationalism this was a moment when there was a lot of um, both interest and concern there was rising nationalism and they said that's too narrow it was kind of a Goldilocks thing. that's too narrow <laughs> China's too big mm. they said how about the Chinese economy I said these are short books, but if you tell everything I know about the Chinese economy, it's going to be about five <laughs> pages. <you know? laughs> so that doesn't really work. So then we thought China in the 21st century. I thought, well, that's great. And then, but to understand the 21st century, you actually have to understand a lot about the 20th century, and even to understand the 20th century, you have to. You really need to go back as far as Confucius. So that's how we ended up. I ended up with this first edition. With the first half of the book is history, up to 49. The second half of the book is from Mao to now. But Mara can talk about where we went from there once she became part of the story.
1: Right. So um, to Jan's question about how is the third edition different from the first or second. Um, so we don't have a copy of the second edition here. Um, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping everyone will be able to see this. But on the first two editions, the, the two pictures used Uh, for the cover were the same. So on the top, you had these young punk rockers at a concert in the early 21st century who were partaking of global youth culture and um, very, very different from, I think, most Americans' idea of China, which tended to come out of the Mao era, of people wearing Mao suits, of um, a lot of uh, rural poverty. And so we were trying, in this picture, the press was trying to show that China is changing, that there's a, a big social change. But then the bottom picture is what has what had stayed the same, more or less, from the Mao era, which was that the Communist Party was still in charge, and that you still had a group of older men ruling the country. In this case, they're no longer dressed in Mao suits, they're wearing Western-style suits and ties. Um, but. It, this, this was the era, this was published in 2010, the era of consensus rule, the time of Hu Jintao. So when we published the second edition in 2013, um, we changed the accent color on the cover from orange to red. Because books about China have to be red at some point. And so uh, Jeff had resisted that. On the first edition but for the second edition we we gave in and we said okay we'll we'll go for it um but the pictures stayed the same because we felt that those two aspects those two elements of china in the 21st century were largely the same on the third edition and this relates to how the content is different um we kept the top picture because we thought that this was still a great uh, shorthand way of talking about how China had Chinese society had changed. Um, but we switched out the bottom picture. It was no longer the era of mass consensus rule in the Chinese Communist Party. Now we're, we have a photo just of um, several members of the standing committee and Xi Jinping is front and center. And in this book he plays a fairly large role compared to the role that Hu Jintao played in the first two editions, which was that we mentioned him. He came in you know, here and there, but he, he wasn't really a focus of any particular section. It was just that he was this guy at the top of the Chinese Communist Party. Whereas in the third edition, we talk quite extensively about how Xi Jinping's um, five years so far in power have really changed. Um, changed politics in China, have changed Chinese society, and have changed China's relationship with the world more broadly, and the United States in, in particular. We have a chapter on US-China misunderstandings. Um, and then we also, again, swapped out the accent, co- uh, accent color on the cover, which was uh, we, a couple of years ago after the second edition came out. Jeff and I were doing one of these joint talks at the University of Nottingham. in uh, They have a campus in Ningbo, China. And one of the students in the audience raised his hand and he said, you know, if you do a third edition, I think you should make the cover green because the environment is going to be one of the biggest issues that my generation faces. And we thought that was a really good idea and so we told Oxford when we do the third edition um, we would like to make the color green and I think it I think it works does. Yeah,
2: so there there are a couple of other things that I like I've always liked the cover the ad they came up with it but it's also I first went to China in 1986 and I didn't see scenes that looked at all like this <laughs> in fact to get it, see a scene like this I would have to go to Hong Kong there were certain things in Hong Kong you didn't see in the mainland um, but there were scenes kind of like this Although there are things that are changed even since then within it. And Amara mentioned the, the Western-style suits and the fact that Xi Jinping is referred to often as the president. There have been some things that have moved toward converging with international systems around there, as opposed to Chinese leaders were still often in, in Mao suits and things like that in the 80s. And this was, this was really important. That's one reason why when Deng Xiaoping put on a cowboy hat, it was such a, such a photo, photo shot. Here was somebody... Showing that he was open to shifting toward um, another part of the world and breaking away and things like that. But here, about this picture, rather than the bottom picture here, one thing I like, because I can't resist it, is this is of the standing committee, which is such an important thing, and they're all standing. So, you know, that's good. Now, there are only, I mean, there are more than five people on the standing committee, but this gets it, and this gets Xi Jinping front and center. So people are joking. There have been, I mean, It's, I think, and many other people think, it's a very problematic move that they've done away with term limits and the possibility of moving more toward uh, potential presidents for life or president or head of the country because being chairman of the Communist Party is more of his power even than president. But the possibility of continuous rule, that's kind of worrisome. But it has led to some interesting jokes. For example, there was uh, a joke about, um, there's a lot of pressure on, on Chinese women of a certain age to get married, and uh, one woman said on, uh, on the internet is, my parents have been giving me a hard time. They've been telling me I have to be married before Xi Jinping's time in power is over. Well, I guess, I guess the pressure's off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we feel that for the longevity of the book, again, it's a worrisome thing, but for the longevity of the book, Say we wait six or seven years to get around to uh, uh, fourth edition. This picture will probably still work, except maybe it'll need to be cropped a little bit <laughs> so there. Um, the other people in the, the there are other members of the standing committee. Yeah. Who are they? So well, I think the the, the issue is Wang Chi-Shan's not on it because he's aged out. But I think the but 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 part of what's interesting is that the names don't. What you would usually want to say is. Who's the one who's been designated to be his successor? That was the key person on, um, on that. So that leads me to the, the most quoted line I've ever had on um, China was um, CNN uh, inter- interviewed me. They were doing a special before the lead up to the 19th Party Congress. And they wanted to know who the five most powerful people in China were. And I said, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, that's not really what I think about. And they said, you know, really, come on. We're collecting this from a bunch of people. Just tell us something. And I said, okay, if I, I, I were going to answer it, I'd probably say this. The five most powerful people in China are the head of the Chinese Communist Party, the president of China, the person whose face you see most often on the streets, on billboards or with slogans, the person whose book you see most prominently displayed in any bookstore. And the person who calls the shots for the military. She, 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 and she. So um, there is a sense in which, really, as Mara was saying, we've moved from the time of rule by somebody who's the first among equals in a group to a a time in which, really, there's one person who matters enormously and not others. And even the the Wang Qishan, his his closest um, ally in certain regards aged out wasn't on the standing committee anymore and people said well that shows that it's not all about personal rule actually because even his closest comrade he he can't keep on but then they brought him into another very prominent role through a back door at the same time they announced the end of term limits so it just really reinforced it so I like the fact also there are five people there like the five most powerful people (laughs) but I could only come up I could only name one of them
0: Y- the discussion you just had um, sort of made me think about your preface where you talk about your concern about the second, the, the, you're talking about your second edition, but I'm sure it's true any edition you put out, mm-hmm. you're worried, especially a book like this, it's going to be not irrelevant, but not up to date 50 seconds after <laughs> it hits the, mm-hmm. the bookshelves. So how do you think about that in terms of being authors of a book like this? And, and you do, you did, you were able to persuade the Oxford University Press to wait a while yes. to extend your publication date until you had a good sense of the fact that she was going to be it. But it was before the term limit. Yes. Got, so how do you think about those kinds of things?
1: Yeah, so I was absolutely convinced. We finished the manuscript and turned it in in, I think, early November of Last year, 2017, and um, I was absolutely convinced that if anything was going to become I- irrelevant or invalidated before the book hit shelves, it was going to be that um, Jiang Zemin would die, and that our couple of paragraphs about him wouldn't matter so much anymore because we talk about his continuing influence in the government and so forth. But instead, what happened was the end of term limits, which we it, that announcement came, I think, a couple of two to three weeks after we signed off on the absolute final page proofs. And they said, OK, we're going to start churning out copies of your book. Um, and then that, that happened. And so we have a couple of paragraphs in here on discussing potential scenarios for Xi Jinping's successor and how this could play out and the different um, different ways this could happen. And I don't think they're invalidated, but um, you know that it would change the, change the discussion a little bit. But yes, write, we're essentially writing a work of current history. As Jeff said, there is the first half of the book is about history and historical legacies, so the different ways that China's history is talked about in the present and the different elements of Chinese history that are important in the present. The second half of the book is called The Present and the Future. And chapter six is the future, uh, which is a very hard thing to write about, especially for two historians who are <laughs> usually socialized to kind of defer any questions about the future. Um, one of the things that we try to do and try to emphasize is that we are talking long-term, that we're, we're interested in how history affects the present, about how historical memory is important, about the different um, historical legacies that the Chinese Communist Party is drawing on as it's coming up with slogans and rhetoric and policy and so forth, and that the um, Communist Party is very aware of what's going on in other countries too, that they're constantly monitoring what's happening in other places to see, OK, if, if there's regime change in this country, what do we need to tweak in our system to prevent the same thing from happening here? And so there's, there's a feedback mechanism um, that we talk a little bit about. But we do acknowledge that it's, it's really difficult to um, keep everything as current as we would like to have it. But the world is changing a lot. I mean, we're, we're talking specifically about China, but the element that came in as we were writing was that donald trump was elected president of the united states and suddenly there was a lot of uncertainty here too about what the future might hold and um how the course of the u.s china relationship might map out over the over um the four years that he will be in office and so i I think it's it's a really tricky um line to walk but we're trying to give a broader perspective and say We can't answer your question about what's going to happen next week or next month or next year, but we need to understand how this all fits into a longer arc of Chinese history and society and politics so that when something does happen next week, next month, next year, you will have the background knowledge and the context needed to put that into that broader context.
2: But one of the things to note is that um, we have to change the way we cover the past as history goes forward. Mm -hmm. Even though, so the thing we actually worried about when the term limits were announced, we 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 term limit end was announced, wasn't that we hadn't put that in because you couldn't expect that, and people realized, and and we had said Xi Jinping is developing more of a personality cult and um, is being elevated to a special kind of status. So in some ways, while the timing of the term limit end was surprising. It, a move toward that wasn't in that rates. But one of the things that we worried and we went and checked was, let's hope, because we, we always have to cut some things in the past, because we're trying to keep the book short enough so that you can read it from cover to cover on your first trip to China, and also binge watch a little bit of a TV show at the same time. <laughs> um, but we worried that when we cut, because there's more, there's more of the 21st century fit in, so we have to trim some things of the earlier places and we got very worried that maybe we'd trimmed out Yuan Shikai. <laughs> Yuan Shikai, you know, that's old history. He was a warlord leader in the 19-teens. But when the term limits were cut, or the, the, ter- the end of term limits, some people on the Chinese internet put up pictures of Yuan Shikai, just because Yuan Shikai had been a warlord, who had been a president, and had proclaimed himself emperor. So if, if that had been gone, that would have been a little bit of a, a problem. Or if you can think of another example, um, one of the things that made the second edition feel dated was new things that had happened in the present. But another thing was that we didn't have much about the Silk Road in the, in the second edition, first or second edition. And suddenly, with the Belt and Road Initiative, the Silk Road looms larger in the stories that the, the Beijing government tells about the past, so there needs to be more about that there not because new things have happened in the Tang Dynasty, because the Tang Dynasty really is the stuff that happened is still there, but the story that's told about it, the use that's made of it, and the fact that a use is made of it now that presents it, the Silk Road, is something that basically, the new Silk Road leads from China to other places. The historic Silk Road, which wasn't (coughs) called that at the time, the historic Silk Road was about flows of influence and goods and cultural forms. Into and out of China, so it required a new kind of um, section about what actually happened and what uses it's being made. So we have to, we we really did a quite comprehensive um, revision of this that included redoing some parts of the past. And similarly, if somebody had done this at an earlier point, just imagining at times a book like this um, before there were Confucius Institutes, the part on Confucius would feel instantly kind of dated if you had, like, so you have something about Confucius, but you don't mention Confucius Institutes. So there is a way in which the past is, a, is always being redone. It's not just about China. I think sh- the Chinese government right now has a particular sense of and uses of the past, but that would be true of any place. The past never stays still. If you had a book in the United States um, about, you know, everything, what everyone, everyone needs to know, uh, Colonial America and you had something about the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party, once there was, if you wanted to make it speak to the present, once there was a Tea Party movement, that alters uh, what was going on then. Even though the past doesn't change, it doesn't stay still.
0: So this is a book that's aimed at the general public, yes. Uh, yet you do have footnotes in it yes, and um, further resources, which I think is actually a wonderful thing for the general reader. But did you have an argument over whether you should have footnotes or not, or was that a no-brainer? Because you didn't really want it to be academic.
2: Minimal footnotes was the format. We had we had to live with the format they had, but that was okay. So this is
0: from Oxford. Again, a
2: lot of it is what you're used to. So academics might say, "Well, it's really hard for me to work with without extensive footnotes." But we both, though we come, I'm still in the academic world purely, and Mara has been in it. (laughs) <laughs> One, and, and yet, <laughs> has while, <successfully> while, <laughs> while she was working on her dissertation, she was also writing op-eds and things. Yes. So <laughs> both of us had written things with no footnotes. So for us, to have a few footnotes felt okay, whereas people who thought the only way to do it is to document everything might have had trouble at how rarely we footnote that. Did we have... Yeah. We didn't have any arguments about, you know.
0: No. What did you have yeah. arguments about? And what was it like for <laughs> the, the
1: teacher to be working with the student? Oh. Uh. Uh, no, 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 no. Deadlines. <laughs> that was right. So that, well, well, you were we good are, at de-
2: you know? Yeah, Mara is
0: very good at deadlines.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Sometimes. Right. I think.
2: Um, uh, well, yeah. What, yeah.
1: I, I think the one thing it wasn't an argument, but the one thing that we really had to work out in the third edition was um, we have this large section at the back called "Further Resources." So, as Jan said, this is a bo- This is an introductory volume about China, and it's not intended to be read. Um, it's not intended to be a totally comprehensive introduction to every facet and every little detail about Chinese history. It introduces a lot of things and talks about them briefly, but then turn to the further resources section at the end if you're really interested in a particular topic, and we'll give you three or four more articles or books or things to um, look into that for a more in-depth discussion of those things. And the one... um, part that, again, we didn't argue about this time, but we had to kind of work out how we wanted to do it, is that increasingly a lot of what's important to read about China, it's not just books and articles that are published in magazines or academic journals, it's that there are many, many um, websites, Twitter feeds, podcasts, newsletters that you can sign up for, which are fabulous resources. But a lot of times they come and go, that people get really excited about a a project um, and they might start doing it and stick with it for a couple of years, but then other things intervene and life happens and that, that particular digital resource goes away. And so we were trying to do the further resources section and figure out, what looks like it's, it's likely to be around for a long time, what might be more ephemeral. And what we finally realized after working on this for several days is that actually, we shouldn't be trying to commit this to print um, because it could get dated very quickly, but that we should be doing this online where we can update those, those lists of resources and put links to things like different Twitter feeds and podcasts and so forth. Um, so we're going to have a page at my website that is the digital further resources for the book so that we can keep that up to date.
2: So one note, though, the first edition didn't have further resources, it had further readings. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think I changed the the word. Yeah, you've changed (laughs) the
2: word. And that was partly a recognition that a lot of the discussion of China that matters is going on. Um, People who want to keep up with China now, often, if we, we were just at the Association for Asian Studies meetings, and the conversation was as much, which podcast do you listen to? as what journals do, you, this hurts me because I edit a journal, <laughs> but which journal do you subscribe? I mean, it was partly about journals, those still matter for some kinds of discussion. But for others, um, podcasts matter a lot, um, websites, there are a variety of things that are just part of the, we need to think of, a, of an environment in which you keep up with um, things about China in different kinds of registers. So further resources made, made sense.
0: I'm going to open it up to the audience. I see a couple hands were starting to be raised, so I want to let everyone have a chance. I know it's not like a usual um, event you have here, where there's a specific subject that you could ask particularly, because this is a very broad range of subjects, which Mara and Jeff have touched upon. Um, a couple that I see aren't in here that I'd like to ask you about at some point. Sure. But sure. let's open it up and introduce yourself first, everyone, please.
3: Um. So my question is regarding uh, how to balance out dealing with uh, the different spectrums of age groups of people in China, right? So what I mean by that is you've got the aging population for the senior folks, and you've got the younger groups of people of, of which he's got to boost
2: the morale of, he's got to, you know, also uh, additionally uh, encourage more families to produce children mm-hmm. to power the engine of the future, right, of China. So, how is she really planning
3: to uh, to to really balance out all
1: of that you know um, on both ends
2: of the spectrum? Any so, I mean, it, it's great that you, you frame the question um, that way. For a lot of um, one of one of the goals we have when we're writing for a very broad generation that doesn't pay attention to China, it, you know, or just has passing attention to other things, they don't realize how important the aspirations attitudes expectations of people of different generations are and if you say that they're very different then people might say well of course you know generation grandparents never completely understand where their grandkids are coming from but you have to say in china because of the rapidity of change that space between generations instead of being a gap can be this this chasm because just you have people leaping through um, modes of technology. Um, when I when I first went to China in '86, the people who are my age had some of them had never ridden in a car, and had never made a private phone call. They'd only made phone calls in um, a, a neighborhood phone, and then those people's children are riding and thinking nothing of riding in cars and hailing the car on a, a car on a smartphone you know, that's there only, and they've never used a phone they've had to share for others. So I think, you know, obviously this isn't something that you need to be uh, thought of, uh, reminded of, but because you phrased it that way exactly about the differences. Um, I'm not sure what the the strategy is. I think um, it's going to be an enormous issue for going forward, particularly with the aging population and the um, declining um, labor pool I think when it comes to the appealing to um, um, t- keeping keeping support among different different age groups I think um, you can you can think of it in a couple of different ways. One is the the rhetoric of nationalism and the kinds of entertainment involving with nationalism are telling a kind of similar story but, uh, folk, but appealing to different groups. So there are nationalist um, movies being made. For a while, there were nationalist movies that largely played historical dramas, and now you're starting to see movies with a nationalistic side to them that are aimed at younger viewers, right. like um, you know, Wolf Warrior would be an example of something that has some of the characteristics and style of a computer game, or some of this for... An action movie in different parts of the world that are part of that taste, but in the same. But the goal of it is to get across the idea. Um, look at how much um, the Chinese Communist Party is able to protect its people in a way that past uh, governments couldn't. That would be a way where it's the same message, but it's calibrated and put through different um, through different media. Um, there are other ways in which there are different messages being conveyed, and I think the. The message about having more children is one of the ones that, that the government hasn't found a very effective way to do it. That the um, restrictions on on down to one child have been lifted, but you aren't having pe, but you can't turn that turn that tap on and off as right, easily right, right. as some right. of the others.
1: Yeah, um, I'll just add. I'm really interested in propaganda and at times in the 21st century, the um, Chinese state propaganda looks very clumsy and kind of hokey, and you know they were doing these rap videos that were supposed to show that the party was cool, but then they're like so bad that I was laughing at them. Um, but I saw a piece of propaganda a couple weeks ago that I actually felt very affected by, which was uh, a, mo- a short video clip about caring for the elderly, and it showed Xi Jinping um, holding his mother's hand and walking her around and saying, like. I, I always come home to her or something like that. Uh, and it was actually a pretty good piece of uh, Chinese propaganda. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a message that we're seeing. You know, As Jeff said, the, the instruction to have more children, it's not that easy. There are so right. many other social and cultural factors and economic factors that go into the decision to have one or two children. Um, but the sort of cultivation of... Uh, caring for the elderly, of um, playing a bigger role in your parents' lives because there aren't as many social services or things available, and we are going to see this aging population in China, I think that's probably a somewhat easier sell um, because it's just, you know, spend more time with them, not have another child, which will cost you X amount of dollars over the course of their lifetime.
0: Actually, in terms of that propaganda clip that you saw, uh, CCTV has become increasingly very sophisticated mm-hmm. in putting together short clips. They're really they're public service ads in yeah. many instances, and the production quality is very good and, and they're very thoughtful and very you know sort of <laughs> tear-jerking, um, but, but interesting. Yeah,
1: I think the I think the party is, um, and I mean the Department of Propaganda. Everything's being reorganized, so we'll see how this plays out. But I think they're trying different things, just like we were talking about. That, you know, if rap videos just get laughed at, then maybe stop doing those and try something else. Um, Go for the go for the heartstrings instead. Right, that's what they're doing at the moment.
0: Yes, Andy Mirtha. Sorry, introduce yourself. (laughs) From. uh, From? and part of our Public Intellectuals <laughs> and, program. And, yes, <laughs> and, uh, Can't leave that up. The out. second
4: cohort of the National Committee on U.S. China <laughs>
0: Public Intellectuals. So, I mean, the
4: first time I went to China was 1988. So I was there for 88 to 89. I remember when I went there and I was announcing that I was going to China, everybody was really excited and was cooing about pandas and the Great Wall and everything. And when I came back, they were all surprised that I made it out alive. And so there's there's not only a fair amount of ignorance, but there's also bias. Mm-hmm. And those two, you know, that was mm-hmm. particularly dramatic, but you saw a real shift in that bias. When you were approaching writing this book, and, and, and writing for the general public is far more challenging, at least for me, than it is uh, for my tribe. Um, did you, in addition to trying to kind of face the challenges of, of, kind of overcoming general uh, ignorance about a, a
0: specific topic did you uh, confront the issue
1: of bias mm mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. yeah i mean chapter 5 is us china misunderstandings and so we try to cover some of the some of the things that we think um, you know preconceived notions that american readers might have that we we want to not necessarily correct but to explain a little bit more to unpack and put into a larger context um, so we do talk about um, various things there, such as, now I'm blanking on it, um, what's in that chapter? But <laughs> <laughs> what's in that chapter? What, is. Well, I think we, I think Yeah, that... we talk about, um, oh, well, we start, what is the most common thing Americans get wrong about China? So we, we tackle that right off the bat. And so, yes, um, we mm. are trying to, you have to buy the book to find out the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so I'll, I'll say it's a general strategy. So, I mean, it's amazing how recurring. Yeah. the swings toward romanticization and demonization are. And they take many different forms. And sometimes it's actually, I'm um, another place I've written about the idea of um, big bad China and the good Chinese, often there'll be an idea of an evil state and the good ordinary people or the representative of an alternative. And sometimes the alternative that's admired is someplace outside of Outside of uh, the mainland, sh- the mainland, or sometimes it's one figure who seems to be saving. But the but the recurring pattern of it tends to be an idea that China is ineluctably different and strange, and that can be in a delightful way, or an admiring way, or a despising way. And so one of the main ways to um, to help to help get away from that is actually to focus on things that are shared between, in this case the United States, because we're writing largely for Americans, similarities because between Americans and Chinese and between Americans and America and China as a country, and thinks about things that 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 are, are related. So to talk about diversity within China, because this idea of a homogeneous China and homogeneous Chinese people is one of the things that leads Toward biases for for good or evil, either admiration or not, but thinking about the trajectories of the countries. So we spend a lot of time in that chapter about parallels between the US and China, sometimes moving through time. We talk about how when the United States was a rapidly growing, a rising power in the late 19th century, a lot of the things that were said about America by the previous um, by the powers that be at that time, like Britain where America builds things incredibly fast, which is very exciting, but it's also dangerous. They don't respect labor. You can't trust products there. They're shoddy. If it's made in America, think twice about it. They don't respect intellectual property. Charles Dickens came to America and says, great, they're reading my books, but they're all, um, I'm not getting any money. They're all pirated editions. And thinks about the kind of echoes you could have of that to things that are said about China in the recent past. And then, you know, that doesn't mean it's all the same, though. I mean, of course, there, there are differences between the systems. But just making those those reminders, I think, m- moves against that. But you can also say in the present there are certain things that if you're outside of China and America, people look at the two countries and don't think of them as the polar opposites that we do, but think of what they have in common. We're two of the countries that are most likely to veto something in the Security Council because we don't want An ally to be um, to be punished, or because we just sort of were big continent-sized countries that uh, have founding um, ideas that are that we're not imperialist, but for a lot of the rest of the world, they think, well, you sure seem to be kind of an imperialist America when you you when you took over Hawaii, which wasn't yours, which is an Mm -hmm. island that you suddenly claimed you had rights over, and China claims not to be imperialist, but hell, it, it seems to be expanding. So you talk about those things, and you get to a point where it's not about saying they're the same, but to to at least get beyond the idea that they're total opposites, which is, I think, where a lot of um, this particular pattern of bias comes into, where there's this dream about a China that's very different converting to being just like us, and this nightmare about a China that's very different being a threat to us, and trying to get beyond that. Not that there aren't things to worry about, not that there aren't things to admire, but to get beyond that notion of complete uh, lack of parallels is a useful step, I think.
3: Yes? Hi, my name is Eileen to. I'm an economist. I found your, the top photo of your book is very interesting, the the youth there. And that reminds me how, when your fourth edition coming out, how that photo would change. <laughs> <laughs> For example, the haircut. The haircut. Um, we we knew that uh, last Christmas uh, the Christmas ce- celebration was banned by the government. It's a really new thing, and also the T-shirt had the share uh, the sheer army. <laughs> <sheer, sheer, laughs> yeah, um, so that um, rem- makes me wonder uh, the future of China and particularly the the role of uh, youth in China. Whether they can help in shaping the future of China and. Is there a possibility, and given the recent uh, incident of the eye-roaming? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I thought that, uh, because I lived in China for so long, and I thought it was very quiet, the youth perhaps didn't mm-hmm. care. But then that could be a catalyst, because the eye-roaming things are mm-hmm. like to hear the possibility for the youth to Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so I was thinking, if we had switched out the, the top photo on the third edition, um, my vote was to have a photo that was something like a subway car full of people staring down at their smartphones, mm-hmm. because I think that would have gotten across the same sort of message of things are very different in China, and yet there is a, this great similarity with global trends, um, and of course the, ubiquity, the ubiquitous nature of the internet and the smartphone in Chinese cities. And so the last couple of times I've been there, that's, that's when my biggest feeling is when I look down a row of people, pretty much everyone is staring at their phones. Of course, that's largely the same here but Jeff knows a lot more about youth and protest than I do.
0: So And can yeah. you combine that? I, Jeff and Mara and I were all just okay. at the Association of Asian Studies meeting on over this past weekend, and Jeff ran a panel um, which was about censorship in China, but it was, I mean, it was Saturday morning. Yeah. And he started off with a beautiful comment that I found very interesting because it sort of echoed what I think about youth and protest, and yeah. I hope you'll incorporate that into your answer.
2: Okay. Okay, I will. I'm good at taking direction. <laughs> um, so it is, I think, related. So there, there are a couple of things that I would say. One is it's hard to figure out how a sort of youth movement of any sort would take part place in, um, in mainland China right now because of the degree of controls. Um, and one of the signs of it is there's been very little activism on campuses, with, with one exception recently of um, some of the, uh, when the, some of the Me Too movement complaints about sexual harassment came to China, some of it was on uh, campuses, uh, but it was quickly, fairly quickly squashed. So it's hard to figure out where the space is, but, um, and I think this is what, what Jan was thinking of, one of the things I've learned studying uh, youth movements is that there's a quite consistent uh, tendency for people to write off entire generations as being self-absorbed and incapable of caring about bigger issues but are uh, uh, but and and to say that unlike the past when the person who's talking generation or an old generation say compared to my generation this you know this these aren't people these aren't this isn't a generation that's going to amount to much when i got to china in 1986 uh, the summer of 1986 and I told people I was working on youth movements of the past because I was writing about pre-49 ones. I had some professors say, it's too bad you came now because these students are so apolitical. All they care about is the latest fashions and they're perming their hair and they're trying to list things. And then within six months, there were the protests that were the sort of warm-up for Tiananmen. A couple years later, there was talk about the Tiananmen generation and how um, what they were doing. And then in Hong Kong, in early 21st century, if you'd ask somebody, what about this generation? See, all they care about is their jobs or their uh, having a place to live and things like that. They don't really care about politics. And then a few years later, there was the Umbrella Movement. And um, in the United States, Two years ago, you say, what about this generation of young people? You have a lot of people say, you know, they're very self-involved. They're all looking at their smartphones. smartphones. (laughs) They're really not, you know, the 50th generation, the 50th anniversary of 1968 is coming up, but there's no way there would be any significant youth movement. And now we've seen this amazing um, outpouring of protests about something that um, an older generation has been unable to deal with led by these, um, by these youths. So it seems sometimes that the only, the only verity about youth movements is a group that is going to do one, do one of significance will be written off before they do as incapable. Uh, that doesn't mean that every generation does that. I think there, there is an extent in which um, contradictory kinds of things, contemporary youth, um, there is a lot of nationalism. There's a lot of national pride. It's, but that can also lead to a sense of sort of aggrievement toward how China is being treated in the past and eagerness to never be bullied again which is some of what this kind of nationalism and sometimes that gets reinforced rather than undermined by living by spending time abroad. sometimes people come back abroad with their minds opened mm. and critical of, of what they've seen with propaganda sometimes they go if they're in the, the US and they experience a kind of... Um, say even casual forms of racism then they start to direct it at them then maybe they go back and think well you know I went doubting all the government propaganda but now I can believe how there was this time so it can go in many different directions but you have um, you have both nationalism and you also but you also have a fair amount of um, concern about issues of, of environment and what kind of that can go along with nationalism in a funny way or at least patriotism that you love your country and you don't want to see it spoiled. So we really just don't know what would happen if, for example, there was some kind of a, a, of a disaster that the government was seen as mishandling. You could have, you had a lot of youthful outpouring of volunteerism uh, around the Sichuan earthquake, and it wasn't directed at the government. But what if there was something that was felt that the government was doing badly? Would there be a rekindling of something there? We, we really don't know. Um, and people are capable in China, as well as everyone else, to have contradictory, hold contradictory things in their, in their own mind. And one of, the, one of the pieces of writing I keep going back to um, is a piece that Helen Gao, a very talented um, mm-hmm. journalist, originally from China, but educated some in the West and now back in China. She wrote a piece called Diaoyu in our hearts, I think was the name of it. Mm-hmm. And this was in the Diaoyu Island uh, conflict with Diaoyu Islands in Chinese, Senkaku in Japanese. Uh, and there was a lot of, like, intense nationalistic fervor about these are, these are China's islands. Um, and there was an online poll that were sort of saying, so who did the Daoyu Islands belong to? And the, the Chinese who, from the mainland who, who, they all said these should be, you know, part of the PRC. Then a second question was, if you had a child that was born there, what kind of citizenship would you want them to be able to hold? And a significant percentage said, Taiwan, Taiwanese, because then they would have there's better nature there. They would grow up in a cleaner if they could go there, cleaner environment. Hong Kong residency, because then they would have more freedom of speech. And actually, there were some who said Japanese, because they would have different kinds of uh, connections to the wider world. And so some said PRC, but they could both be nationalistic and open to that. And people have this complexity.
3: Can you just add one more, I mean, how to how history is taught. Are you? Can you talk about because of, they tend to be selective, so that
2: times. Very much so.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we are seeing rewritings of that. I mean, it's not just that there is one state textbook that was created, you know, in the early '80s, or something that is enduring until now. Is that it's constantly being reevaluated, and they're adding things in and taking things out of the um, education curriculum. And there's this patriotic education that started after the um, Tiananmen movement to try to encourage the sort of nationalism that Jeff was talking about. And so, yes, that the the teaching of the history um, in one particular way can definitely lead to um, a certain sort of nationalism, but there's also a whole lot of interest in, okay, so we know that the government is teaching it from the government's perspective, the, the party state's perspective, and but there's the whole internet, and so people are going out and trying to find alternative narratives and trying to figure out um, what's not in their textbooks. And so I think there's, you know, it's not simply that this is what's taught in the classroom and that means that everyone thinks that, it's that there, there's an awareness of um, what the government is leaving out, and that the government is spinning things in a certain way.
3: So, we may be in the midst of. Uh, Anla, introduce yourself, oh, please. Yes, I'm on the Chang from South China, and happy to see both of you and all three of you. Um, we may be in the midst of this tariff trade war, and uh, there's a lot of posturing between two countries, and we may be playing out. Precisely what the whole concept of the citizens' trap is. And that uh, one of the solutions, you know, Alson, Graham Ellison uh, offers is this uh, providing public goods by China. And that it's normal when a rising power is taking over the uneasiness that the US is feeling perfectly normal. And some doubt that the One Belt, One Road may be considered, may not be considered public goods. So I don't know if you address that in the book, and what are your thoughts on that, and if China has
2: a chance to provide public goods, what would that be? So um, let me say first, it's great to have you in the audience. Sub China is something um, that we rely on and enjoy, um, the Seneca podcast and other things, and for discussions like this, um, also just to be fair and not show that I'm just you know just praising. The um, operation of the, I would, I, I yes, yes, I would all say China File is some place that you go to for debates on these kinds of things by people from very different perspectives, and things, and they'll have better coverage of the tariff um, than you'll find in um, things um, that that I'm involved. With. But, um, so, so there are a couple of things that I, I get uncomfortable as a historian with some of these kinds of uses of things that have happened before as potential predictors of the present. And one one reason is because people are aware of what happened before and can be intentionally trying to alter them. And if people think of them as sort of set in stone that there's this natural thing going to happen, then that can make it, it become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so... And, and also, I think it—I um, think some of it over—what uh, I wonder about what's different in the world now, among other things, is the entwinement of the rising power and the risen power. And one of the problems with the tariffs, at least some of them have been doing, is if you're targeting um, industries that are incredibly entwined, you can sometimes be doing self-inflicted harm. Um, so I worry I worry about and you know I'm not alone in this, but you know the people I listen to and commentate, if you if you are putting tariffs on steel and actually the country that's producing the steel is less dependent on the profits from the steel, than your country is dependent on jobs that you steal how are you I mean you're actually kind of ruining your your own thing so um, there's that. Um, I think we're, there's no question, though, that these are, these, are difficult, these are going to be difficult times, that there's going to be a lot of friction. Um, the United States has grown quite comfortable in an, a very anomalous period of being far and away the biggest economy and the strongest military and, um, and the, most, the strongest soft power place. And so sometimes when we're diminished in one area, we, we get sort of desperate at the idea we're getting surpassed rather than thinking about it being a more complicated world. I also don't think there's any guarantee that going forward that in 10 years we may be having a very different kind of discussion, not because of the US and China, what's happened with them, but there may be some other country that we weren't thinking about that much um, that's suddenly significant in that thing. I, I'm I'm always aware of the fact that when I started studying China, um, People said to me, I told people I was studying China in part because I didn't know if I could get a job as an academic, so I thought at least if I study China rather than, say, Britain or France, their history is interested in me, too. At least if I can't get a job as a historian knowing something about China, business or journalism or government, there'll be jobs. People said, well, shouldn't you be studying Japanese? Shouldn't you be studying Japanese history? Because, you know, they're the really big economic story. China is really interesting. It's big. It's not that it's insignificant. Insignificant. But Japan—that's the—that's what America is threatened by I economically. Mean, oh wait, or maybe Russia, because Russia is the geopolitical thing. And so you know, they thought you're kind of half smart. You know, you're kind of pragmatic because, of course, you're going to be an unemployed British historian if you go into that. But China—that's not so. But my wife likes to tell me that I get the last laugh because now. China is Japan plus Russia. <laughs> it's the economic concern and the geopolitical. So it's no question it's going to be rocky, but I don't, I don't think this idea of a kind of on the edge of, uh, of uh, war, I mean, it, it's, it's rocky for a lot of reasons, but I don't think the model necessarily works because of, of things like the entwinement and um, the, people's, the people's connection the number of people from each country in the other place, and you know, there's just a lot of variables that don't seem to me to to carry over that well.
0: Yes,
5: and I'm Joel Epstein. I worked in China for J.P. Morgan Chase and also AIG, um, and uh, I'm um, trying to figure out where China is going with respect to private business and the future of private business. Uh, we saw. Uh, in several decades ago uh, that Xi Jinping was uh, very much a reformer in Zhejiang, helping businesses to develop, but now we see the pendulum swinging towards uh, centralization, the legitimization of party control. Does that imply the delegitimization of private business? And where do you expect China to strike a balance what kinds of companies will provide in terms of size and uh, global nature or just local nature versus state-owned enterprises?
1: One of the things that I think is really interesting is that we are seeing this, um, as you said, the pendulum swinging back towards state-owned enterprises. Um, but we're also seeing this big government promotion of entrepreneurship and innovation and sort of encouraging people to break out and go for the gig economy, that there's this idea that you need to unleash the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity of young people. And I think it's because there, there is this recognition that you know, going back to a state-owned enterprise model, like during the Mao era, when everyone had their iron rice bowl, but that meant you had a lot of, a lot of inefficiency. Um, that that's not really sustainable because then people are coming to work and they're just sitting there and reading the newspaper and still getting paid and all their benefits. And so it's, it seems to me. Um, and again, we're not economists, and there are people who study this much more intensely. But from what I've read, it seems that there's this swing back toward state-owned enterprises, but trying to make them as efficient to a certain degree as possible, but not, not accepting the idea that everyone must be employed and therefore the state has a responsibility. Instead, it's saying, let's, let's find a way to get people to employ themselves in these small startup businesses. So um, there's, there's a move away from, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, the china china's economy is transitioning away from just export-oriented manufacturing in the south and now it's much more about this make in china 2025 initiative that china is going to become a global producer a global creator of new products in collaboration with for example people in silicon valley and so i think the the pendulum is kind of swinging both directions at the same time that more centralization and state-owned enterprises but also that for the people who can't really fit into that, that that obviously the government's not looking for unemployment, and so it's encouraging people to employ themselves. But but there's a,
5: a lot of trust between uh, tiny companies, yes. and self-employed people versus vast mm-hmm. state-owned enterprises. So mm-hmm. what is the what are you hearing? What are people saying in the government and in the party about the legitimacy of having you know privately owned companies? generating a significant piece of China's GDP? Is yeah, that, Is that going to
2: happen? I mean, what we're, some of what we're, what we're seeing is a desire for maximizing control. Mm-hmm. And that leads to both, both the, the tension between these, but also efforts to insert within private companies more of a party mm-hmm. um, control and you know there have always been some degrees of these things going on but we 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 are tipping away in many ways tipping away from increased space for things that the government uh the party state which is increasingly now the party again and less the state um things that they can't control so it's i don't think it's it's certainly moving in that direction whether that's in massive, uh, whether it's, I mean, it's partly about state-owned enterprises, but it's also about trying to figure out a way to have more control over the, um, the other end, the private sector there. Mm-hmm.
0: So the word private in China, when you're talking about a private sector, is going to have a very different definition for a, quite some time. I mean, there's yeah. never going to be anything that's totally private at least yeah, under there the are, current there administration. Are lots
5: of companies in China which are privately owned or predominantly privately owned.
0: Yes, but increasingly, as Jeff said, the part, the, the state, the government, the president, right. wants yeah. to insert the party into how, it. Yeah.
5: So my question is, how, how far, far does that pendulum right. swing right. Back right. the other way? And is there something in the... I mean, Xi Jinping has been a very pragmatic yeah. guy yeah. In, in the past. Yeah. And uh, he's got a lot of problems to confront. Demographic, right. environmental, right. you name it. Um, and private uh, private ownership of parts of the economy uh, can be helpful to solving these problems. If you stop it from happening, you pay a price.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: So, is it going to pay? You think that's what? Absolutely. Yeah. So,
2: I think it's, it was, there are a couple of, I mean, well, there are a couple of variables, and one of the variables, getting back, I mean, I'm, I'm still embarrassed. It is, I mean, Li Keqiang is on here. I just don't know who the other ones are, which <laughs> says, I mean, but I think one of the things that, um, I don't think the pragmatism has, has gone away, I mean, the, the Chinese Communist Party has been. Actually, from, from Mao's time on, this is one of the continuities that some of the political scientists who studied this, uh, Sebastian Hallman and Elizabeth Perry had a book about this, about, re, an edited volume about appreciating just how experimental within general ideological frameworks the Chinese Communist Party has been in trying to ensure, um, in a way, having a, a, a nationalist agenda above all and a, maintaining its own power above all. But one of the things that a less centralized around a single leader system had was you had a kind of ongoing debate (laughs) within um, when Deng was in power and um, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. You could have periods of people making the case for both those positions within the government. And part of the... We got very used to this idea, both of pendulum swings, and I'm less familiar with with the economic thing, but some of that was going on where you would have... Zhu Rongji having a different view or somebody in the government who could be counted on to make the case for more room for private as opposed to the public. Now the question is, is that kind of room for debate still there and we just don't know about it or is it is it partially disappearing? I'm much more used to it in this kind of notion of swings and debates within the government about things like an expanded role for civil society or greater room for debate, academic debate, or things like that, or a a lighter role in suppressing protests versus a more uh, restrictive role. And we got used to this idea that there were periods of tightening and periods of loosening. And this had to do in part with debates going on within the party. And for quite a while, actually, since the Olympics, there's been a trend toward tightening. And a lot of people just being used to this pattern said, well, okay, there's a bit of tightening, but That means that we just wait a little, and there'll be this period of loosening. And maybe after Xi Jinping takes power, that'll be the time the loosening starts. Or maybe he'll need to spend a couple of years consolidating his power, and then the loosening and reform will start. And now we're getting to a point where we really have to reconsider that whole paradigm, because what's happened under Xi Jinping has not been the same kind of tightening or a move toward loosening, but an acceleration of tightening and one of the worrisome things is to think does that mean there's no longer that kind of debate within it and that Xi Jinping whatever he was before he took power is now largely focused on um on control above all but there is a pragmatism so i don't think we should i don't think we should uh, write out and it won't have to do with just what happens in china it'll also have to do with what happens in the wider world mm-hmm. and the degree to which um leaders in China are looking and saying that there's some other model out there that suggests a more effective way to accomplish their goals. They've been periodically very astute at that, looking to Singapore under Deng Xiaoping and other places and trying to learn from other economies. But at the moment, there's both tightened control and a great deal of self-confidence, which doesn't lead to a rethinking the road you're on. No last question?
0: Okay, Chris, go
6: ahead. Uh, Chris Mark with the Geist Foundation. One of the um, we, we don't really know very much about Chinese politics, but one of the things we do know is that there is no longer an institutional path toward a success. Of In your view, what does that mean for the future? Or are you willing to? <laughs> 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 so that's, on that
1: subject. that's a bigger question. Um, I think. You know, right now, so yes, there's no institution, there's no designated successor, there's no one person who um, has been anointed by Xi Jinping. Uh, I don't know if, if we're not going to see a successor. You know, I think it might be possible that at some point he mm-hmm. will point and say, "That's my guy," um, but I think he's going to wait quite a bit longer um, before that happens. I think right now there are some sort of younger like. Early fifties-ish officials that he's kind of watching. This is this was the big debate about Chen Minar, right? When he was appointed, um, does this mean that Xi Jinping is cultivating him, that he's going to anoint him as successor? I think he's. I think it's a little too early to tell because, of course, um, you know, one of the big things that confounded Mao and Deng was picking successors and then having to take it back or having to purge them, which created created a lot of chaos in the party. So I think Xi Jinping is much more cautious and he's taking those as you know, cautionary tales. And so you. He, my guess is, and obviously, as you said, there's a lot that we don't know about um, Chinese politics and what goes on in the mind of Xi Jinping. But I think the idea is that he wants to be really, really, really sure that he's picking the right successor before making any sort of public statement about it. I think until that point, we're just it's all just going to be speculation. But I think he would want to avoid the kind of chaos that um, you had after Mao died when Hua Guofeng was this, the, the designated heir apparent, but nobody really was behind him. He's a little too much like Mao. Um, you know, Deng throughout the 80s, we had a Per Chu Bang. And then, um, so I, I think my guess is that Xi Jinping will be extraordinarily cautious in picking a successor and really wanting to road test him, put him through all sorts of, and we assume it's going to be him. I, I guess I should just say, you know, we're taking that for granted. Um, but and he'll,
2: he'll probably be Han.
1: Probably <laughs> be Han. Yeah. Probably, probably have, you know, dark, dark hair. hair. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that might be an example of the leadership learning from history, that it's best to wait and kind of bide your time and make sure that you're making the right choice before putting a public stamp of approval on the person.
2: And I think it's worth thinking about some other norms that have, or expectations that have been altered, even besides the most obvious, you know, the obvious ones about term limits and successor, because I think these are also interrelated. One of the other patterns that's been broken was an idea that after retirement, you were safe from being <laughs> um, persecuted or prosecuted, and he's broken with that. Which makes it difficult, makes it less attractive to retire.
1: Yeah. <laughs> let's say, and
2: so that is something that's changed, and so all of this is part of of of, of a bundle. But um, but this is uh, this is the limit of, of you know history. History matters, but it also but it doesn't give you clear predictions because you don't have these things happening at a time when. Global um, sort of respect for China, despite fears about China, is at is much higher than it was in earlier part. When a Chinese leader like Xi Jinping can go to a setting like Davos and be acclaimed, and can look like more of a grown up than the American leader of the moment, and what happens in other places can make it easier for for him to do certain kinds of things, and there not be as much of attention as there would be in another setting because of global distraction. So the settings aren't the same, so it opens up different possibilities, and all of the moves that are made alter the equation as well, including this suddenly less attractive um, possibility of a quiet retirement.
0: Just let me give you, pose one last question since you're both historians. Uh, You spend a lot of time in the book talking about how sort of, what's in the past has influenced the current political presence in China. So either you can each take one or the other. You can both give me both. But what would you say as historians from the past has been the most important lesson that people in the present have learned? And what's the thing from the past that they didn't learn that could have changed the present day in <laughs> A better way.
2: You want to take both
0: of those?
1: <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing in the past. Or though. one, of the, few, one <laughs> of the few. One of the few one of the few
0: things that China that, that the current leadership and the current population has learned from its past that has shaped it in ways that you think are very important. And is there something that it has sort of erased from its past that you think would have been important to maintain? Or we can cut that off. Well, 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 yeah.
6: let's see. I you on that. I think the most important thing they learned was the study that was done under John Zemin of the reasons why the communism fell yeah. in Eastern Europe. Yeah, that's yeah. That. I think that has... That Shift. Xi yeah. Jinping's project it, yeah. it yeah. gradually gathered momentum during Hu Jintao's, but was not so obvious. And Xi Jinping came in with that project in mind. <coughs> it's yeah. probably the wrong lesson to learn. And it may, uh, but you know that's, from a, our perspective. that's exactly yeah. where right. they specifically and mm-hmm. explicitly and seriously made an effort to look at what happened in the past mm-hmm. and draw lessons from
0: it. That's from the outside, actually. And yeah, that's that was going answer. to be my answer. I, I was thinking more internally, yeah. China's own history. But the that's okay. With China's that own good
6: history is you can't write it until everyone is dead. <laughs> so if you wanted to read, you want to know about Deng Xiaoping, you read Ezra Vogel. There's no Chinese equivalent because there are too many people still alive. It's still yeah. held too tightly within the party history office. So it's gonna be that's going that's a long term process.
0: I, I was thinking longer back. <laughs>
2: longer back
5: than uh, Song. I would say fear hasn't provoked. Look at the way the government is reacting in Xinjiang, overreacting to very small incidental incidents. Um, and it, it shows an enormous amount of insecurity. You talk about Xi Jinping being this authoritarian, all-powerful person. But internally, they're clearly insecure. And I think the fear is a millennial old peasant revolt.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I, but but I don't, I, so I would say as with a lot of things, we actually don't want to disaggregate the lessons from the Chinese past and the lessons from other places because I would merge these things that, um, and, and you don't do an either or. So one of the questions is, why was the why was the why did the Chinese Communist Party react so strongly to Falun Gong? And part of this was because um, there were times in the Chinese past when religious movements gathered a lot of st- of steam, and when a dynasty was losing certain kinds of respect, then these could be very challenging things. But there was also a sense in which an intense awareness of the fall of the Soviet Union and including things like the rise of solidarity, the lesson was be very careful about movements that seem to be cutting, drawing together people from different sections of society and different parts of the country that have some sort of tie to a um, admired figure who has something to do with religious properties. Um, So that is part of why you know, the Dalai Lama, because of his charisma, you worry about things in Tibet that cross across um, class lines and across different parts of Tibet. With Falun Gong, you worry about it, that it attacks different things. It's partly there, this, this fear of a kind of solidarity that used to be called the, the Polish disease, where there was Catholicism as well as other forms of disconsent that pulled together, and there were also fears of religious uh, upheavals in the Chinese past. And it wasn't that it was neither or. It was that this, these came together. There's, there's something, I think, the key thing to realize about the Chinese Communist Party is, in part, it's an incredibly diagnostic entity. It's trying to figure out what are all the kinds of things that could bring something like them down, and how do you alter the equation to do it? And it's points that may be a dynasty look tight, points that may be the Soviet Union, uh, and, and so forth. But it's one reason why paying attention to history And paying attention to places other than China, even while it's so hard to keep up with China today, uh, in the moment, we had the experience um, (laughs) during this book tour, this short book tour, of being asked in the morning in one question about the relationship between China and North Korea, and putting, well, one of the key things to say is that Kim hasn't even met with Xi And then we got on the train and we're each, at our phone. each yeah, checked our smartphone. Oh, my God. Okay. So, um,
0: yes. yes. Well, thank you all for coming. Join me thank in thanking our guests. Uh, you all had great questions. I'm just sorry there were so many of them because we didn't get to hear you sing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Okay, no,
0: and if you buy a book, they will each sign it for yes. you. Yes, uh, absolutely. So. Two
2: signatures for the price of one.
0: <laughs> All right. so.